there are some things that are just simply awkward in life. I mean, if you've tried to learn the English language, the idea that I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y, or if it sounds like an A, can be awkward, can't it? It can be difficult to try and figure out. There are all sorts of things that we all find awkward in our world, things that maybe we don't understand. Like, I I didn't understand. Do you guys remember when we went through the time where anti-jokes were the jokes? Remember that? An anti-joke would be this. What did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? Where's my tractor? It's an anti-joke. It's, some of you are like, this is awkward. Why? It's awkward, right? Uh, how many of you grew up um, watching Little House on the Prairie as a kid? Okay. We're going to go back a little bit old school for a minute this morning. My mother loved Little House on the Prairie. And what she loved about it was at the end of every show, it always wrapped up with a nice bow. Man, I feel like I should just spit some rap lyrics right now or something like that, right? You know, you know after every, every session, after every series, you'd get done with that episode and all of a sudden there'd be a moral to be understood. Life would be put back together. Everybody would be tucked into bed, much like the Waltons. And we'd, we'd just wait for the next day and it would be exciting to see what may come next. And I just have to be honest, I was very awkward watching shows like Little House on the Prairie. You know why? Because my life often didn't go like that. We didn't close every night solving the world's problems, waiting to take on another one the next day. My life tends to be, uh, it's like that episode that you're watching and you love it to death. Each week you, you take time, you prioritize it, you sit down to watch it. And, and as it gets to the end, you know time's about to run out, it says... To be continued. That's why we all thank God for Netflix and Hulu, right? So that we don't watch it during the series. We wait till every episode's out and we can watch as much as we want in one setting. We don't like to be continued, do we? We don't like the hanging suspense of unsolved mysteries or riddles not put together or life not resolved in some way. And so I'm going to make a statement that I think will be awkward for some of you, but I think it's absolutely true. That I think, I think that sometimes optimism can be a bad thing. Bad thing? Shouldn't we always be optimistic, Ed? You know, some situations aren't always optimistic. Sometimes being optimistic in a situation could be unrealistic, inauthentic, right? You have a friend that sits down to you and he says, you know, I am not a pessimist. I am just trying to be realistic, right? And sometimes when we enter the Christian life, what we want is Little House on the Prairie. We want Seventh Heaven. We want the Waltons. We believe because somehow, because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything should be resolved every night when we go to bed and everything should be up and to the right. And yet, when we read scripture, we see these people who go through great tragedy, great trials, obstacles come their way, fear is conquered, death is laughed at. And you look at these people and you know what we say about them? These are great heroes of the faith, right? We should be like them. And then when life comes our direction and it's not what we want, we're like, God, time out. But you're my friend. But we love each other. 
Why isn't it all butterflies and rainbows? Because life isn't always butterflies and rainbows. And so sometimes Christians will open up the word of God, they'll jump into scripture and they'll expect everything to be optimistic. Every story to wrap up with a bow on it. Everything to have a moral at the end. When we get done, we all hold hands, we all sing a song and then we hug and we go home and it's, it's encouraging, it's uplifting, it's great. But then they encounter a book of scripture that's not pessimistic, but it's realistic. It's raw. It's authentic. It sounds like our life off of social media, right? It's where the rubber meets the road. And so we're going to look at a book for the next six weeks called the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's in the Old Testament. It's right after Psalms and Proverbs. And it's part of what we call the wisdom literature of Scripture. Now, many of us like to read Psalms and Proverbs because of maybe how it's written or the things that it expresses. And many of us like Proverbs because if we read a a chapter of Proverbs a day, it seems to give us advice. It's got these nice little one-off statements that you can put on a t-shirt or a mug and you kind of learn them and live them and it just makes life a little bit better. But if you're expecting that, if you jump into Proverbs, you would hear something like this. Proverbs 3, verses 32 through 35. For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble, to the oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools only get shame. That's a proverb. We read those and we go, oh, that makes sense. We take them at face value. We begin to apply them to everyday life and we kind of we kind of build character just understanding the statements as they are. But then we but then we jump into a, a book that may be written a little bit differently. Its approach may have a little different expect, uh, expectation for the reader from the author, from the life that he's been a part of. And when you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, some people are really ultimately bothered, not necessarily upset, but uncomfortable, awkward. It's got that, it's going the wrong way. It's grating against our skin. It feels uncomfortable because there's no magic pill. There's no ultimate antidote. It's this frustrating, turning, wrestling with life and not figuring out the answers that he wants to find. To sum it down, Ecclesiastes requires us to kind of look at our lives and the lives around us, but without polish without the benefit of social media, the real honest look at who we are and the struggle of our lives. Ecclesiastes lays out and seeks to address some of the big questions out of life. Now, this book isn't necessarily depressing, but it is direct. And this book isn't necessarily about inner peace, but the only peace that you'll find from God. This book isn't some sort of pie in the sky but it is honest. It's authentic. It's very genuine about the world that we're a part of. The author may even put it this, simply this way. If, we, if it was to be boiled down to one question, he would be asking something like this. What is of gain in this life? What is of gain in this life? What really matters? What lasts? What continues beyond the moment? 
you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And we're going to start partway down in the first chapter about verse 12. We're going to look at a few verses just to kind of capture an idea of what's going to begin to happen and lay out of this book. Here's what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to the study and to explore by wisdom all that is under the heavens. With a heavy burden, God has laid on uh, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, what we want to do in today's message and setting up the next few weeks is we want to give an overview of where Ecclesiastes is going and how to read it. If you've got the bookmark, you're going to begin to look at different passages, understand how to unpack it. And it's important for you to understand basically the rhythm and direction of how Ecclesiastes is laid out because you did not grow up in its time or in its culture. But there are going to be some things that you're going to notice. For instance, you already begin to hear about the author and the teacher that's laid out in this. Not everybody says exactly who has written Ecclesiastes, but most commentators, most scholars would say it clearly seems to be written from Solomon, the son of David, uh, the young man who had an encounter with God and God asked him, well, what do you want from life? And he said, what I want more than anything else is wisdom. And so God grants him that. But in the, in the pattern of his life, what he does is he takes the best practices of other kings, applies it to his life, and what he realizes is it's not satisfying. It's not fulfilling his life in the way he thought it would. It's not bringing about the lifestyle that he thought he should have. And so ultimately bad decisions begin to play out. Consequences begin to wreck his life. And he looks at the investments of how he has spent his days, his journey, And he realizes it's not leading him to a closer relationship to God or to the person that he wants to become. (laughs) That speaks so deeply to where we are because I think many of us, many of us that have any sort of age under our lives, we look at different times of missed opportunities. We look at relationships that we put too much emphasis into. We look at situations or scenarios that we missed out on because we just had the wrong target. But the author Solomon, who seems to be driving this overall book, takes a moment to really unpack a journal of sorts. It's his most personal thoughts. It's his honest confessions. It's a scenario where he is trying to bring to light to other God-fearing people what it looks like to live a life after ourselves. It gets very raw. At one point, it's almost like uh, Solomon, is, Solomon is garage sailing, he's sailing his life, meaning he's just, everything must go, and he's throwing it out. He's trying to get rid of it. He's trying to bear it before everyone. And some of us would say, well, why, why would he take this approach? And one is because partly of the Jewish view of death at this time. What, uh, what Solomon and many of his peers would have understood is that from the beginning of time in creation, God created peace. A restored relationship, a relationship of intimacy between creation and all of God. But when the sin of man happened, creation was broken. And that peace was lost. And there came our struggle, our toil, our sickness, our death. And so the view that came for many of the people of that day was a desire to live and restore the very moment. That shalom would come back and be active in the everyday life. That we would begin to find purpose and peace and meaning in the day-to-day things. And things of eternity or heaven 
were secondary. Now, we'll unpack that thought later as we go down through uh, this book in the coming weeks. But that's part of Solomon's background. But not only do we get introduced to this idea of the narrator or the one that's speaking through this book, but we get the idea of a teacher or a preacher, so to speak. The Hebrew word would be koheleth, and it's the idea that there is someone who is trying to speak into the words of a flock or a community. He's trying to take the actual life lesson and apply it to people's lives so that they understand the journey that he's been a part of. It'd be like this. If you look at Ecclesiastes 7.15, let me just reference it real quick. Here's a moment the preacher or teacher is talking, and he says this. In my life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The teacher or preacher is literally trying to bring out why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? I think we've all asked that question and we all wrestle with why is life that way? Because at times it can almost feel like what's the point? Why try and do the right thing? Why try and do the good thing? I mean, what really matters in this world? What really is of gain for us? So let me give you, let me give you four phrases that are going to be laid out. And we're going to look at a passage and you're going to begin to see these phrases and words repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The first phrase we need to understand out of this book is the phrase, under the sun. And under the sun is his way of describing the things of this life, the everyday, real life, real circumstances, real situations. It's the day-to-day, under the sun. The second word is gain. And it's really a reference to what is it, what is it that lasts? What is it that you take with your own life and build on it as you grow and mature? The third phrase is striving or chasing after the wind. Striving or chasing after the wind. It's an illustration of toiling in life, but really having no result overall. But the last phrase that we want you to understand is actually this word, this Hebrew word called hevel. Say it with me, would you real quick? Hevel. Hevel is the idea of meaningless. Literally translated, it is a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. But it alludes to the sense that things in this world are ultimately meaningless. There's a lack of clarity. It's fleeting. It's elusive. It's frustrating. There's, there's really nothing great or purposeful about the things of this world. <laughs> if we were to say, how, how would you modern day translate Hevel? Uh, you would say things like this. Uh, why talk about life? Because all of life is just, right? It's just, what's it matter? So the idea of when you begin to look at things about, you know, what things are going to last in this world, what really matters in my life, what's really of gain, it's all hevel. Nothing matters. Nothing lasts. Nothing of great purpose. And so the author begins to lay this out, and this is not the conversation you want to have around the Christmas table, right? People are wanting to sit around. They want to reminisce on how life is. But the truth of the matter is, oftentimes we stop and look at our lives and say, what really matters? What do I have to show for who I am? What's really going on in my life? Is there really any purpose? And oftentimes, when we look at what really lasts and what really matters, oftentimes we say, nothing really matters. Let's look at Ecclesiastes starting in the first verse. And let me show you what this author is trying to display and what he's trying to talk about as he puts this first and foremost in a context of real life. Here's what it says, says, Ecclesiastes starting in in verse 1. 
The words of the teacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless. Hevel, hevel, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea and yet the sea is never full. To the place streams come from and that they, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear enough of its filling and hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, even those yet to come, will not be remembered for those who follow them. What an interesting passage, huh? What a way to introduce a book of Scripture and the wisdom that is found in everyday life. It can seem depressing, but it's very realistic. There are times that when we really measure life and we say, what do we have to show for it? It's nothing but temporary, hevel, hevel, meaningless, meaningless. It passes. One of the phrases that gets repeated over and over is this idea of under the sun, that as we live our life on this earth in the temporary of our day, what are we really gaining? What are we really amassing? What is our life really known for? It's kind of like when you open the, open the, the opening verses, you begin to have this image of a, a hearse with a U-Haul, Right? When everything is said and done, what's our life going to be about? What's, what's going to be the thing that really marks us? That when we look at our lives, we look at studies, we look at what people want and the happiness that they pursue, you ask people, well, how much money do you need to, to be happy? And it's always just a little bit more. Oftentimes it's, if I could just get the right relationship, if we could just drive this car or have this job or get this raise, but every time we get it, life still continues to play out. And the truth of the matter, that he who has the most toys at the end wins, is a lie. Nobody takes it with him. So the preacher is trying to say, pay attention, people. Pay attention. Everything of this world passes. But what matters most is the relationship, the pursuit that we have of God. This is really where the author begins to lay into this idea of hevel, that we are toiling we are going through life like chasing after the wind, trying to capture these moments, trying to make them for all they're worth. But every day, every moment seems to, seems to move from our hands. But he pens these verses reminding us of generations that come, things that have been done over and over and over again. And we're reminded that life is always a cycle. It's kind of like this. Every household has, can I say it? A dish demon, right? Do you know what a dish demon is? 
A dish demon is when at the end of the night, when everybody puts everything in the dishwasher, clears all the countertops, puts everything away, and the next night, all the dishes are back, right? That's a dish demon. You never stop washing dishes. Some people have laundry demons, right? There's always laundry to be done. There's always things that are going to play out. These demons just continue to, to haunt us and haunt us because life continues to happen. Those things are just going to be cyclical. They're going to play out. And so as we play them out, we, we hope to find fulfillment in them, and yet it passes. It's fleeting. It's hard to grab a hold of. I like what, I like what one author tries to say when, he, when, when the author begins to say it's like, it's like a fleeting, it's a mist, it's like a, a chasing of the wind. And one way we thought this is a, as you know, we use high, uh, high quality props here uh, when we try and preach a message. And so we were, we were thinking, well, what's it like trying to catch a fleeting moment? And so we just thought, well, it's kind of like bubbles, tiny bubbles, right? And with tiny bubbles, while they're beautiful, if you, if you just try and catch them, they don't last very long. So what, what the author is saying is every, ah, oops, I squeezed it too quickly. Every time there's a bubble, you can try and capture it. But as soon as you do, as soon as you put your hand on it, it's gone. It's fleeting. It's temporary. And as beautiful as they are, as mesmerizing as they may be for children, they pass. And it's a fleeting moment. Or think about the relationships. The author begins to talk about generations who will be forgotten, generations who will never be remembered, generations who will come and be forgotten. You think about what, what kind of relationships should we remember? I mean, take, for instance, the presidency of the United States, right? I mean, there is a, a role, an opportunity for a person of significance to shape both our country and our world. We should remember who those people are. And so if I asked a simple question like, can you name the 29th president, you would say? Right? The leader of the free world? The 29th in a legacy of many? It's Warren Harding. We only know that because we looked it up, okay? Just so we don't have this memorized, okay? It's just, it's just to prove a point. But generations come and generations go. We could have done runner-ups to the World Series. We could have done those, somebody who won the Super Bowl. We could have done, uh, you know, a governor. We could, have done, we could have done a variety of things. But we forget, we forget generations before us. I mean, uh, today was one of those mornings for me. I got up and I tried to find my keys and I couldn't find them. So for 10 minutes this morning, I was tearing up my house trying to find my keys. And you know where they were? They were already in my pants pocket. This pant has lower pockets, and I, I kept smacking my leg, and I couldn't feel him. And so I showed up late for rehearsal this morning because the pastor couldn't find his keys. We've all been there. But let's take a moment. Let's look, what, let's look what it says as we go on through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2, look what the author says. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God or a gift from God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, meaning God, God gives wisdom. God gives knowledge. God gives happiness. But to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. 
This too is meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. See, the problem is that for many of us, when we think about this this journey that we're a part of, we often emphasize the temporary things over what really matters. Like we said, right? Uh, The money in our wallet, the name on our jersey, if I just had a car, if I just had this job, if I just had a raise, the girl on my arm, the house that I own, if, if I just have, then I would be something. I would be somebody. We, in American culture, we make our identity, our purpose, our meaning of life come from things rather than from God. And so the author is trying to say, you know, we have money, but pursuing money leads us to greed. We have intimacy or, or even sexuality, but it, it oftentimes leads us to adultery or to other things if it's our pursuit if we enjoy drink, oftentimes it can lead to drunkenness or, or even our work can lead us to becoming an idol in our lives. Because ultimately what we do is we begin to worship the gifts from God and not the giver of the gifts. Ultimately what happens is we search for the gifts and not the giver. When we can't find meaning in life, we are often searching for the gifts And not the giver, meaning we are chasing the job, we're chasing the promotion, we're chasing the relationship, we're chasing this identity. We are trying to gain something of significance for ourselves. And the author is trying to say the only thing of gain, the only thing that lasts is our relationship with God. And so it's the life that is surrendered back to God. It's the life that's obedient to God. It's the life that that says, God, God, all that I am and all that I have, I lay it out for you. So take my relationships, take my family, take my job, take the very breath that I have and use it for your good, for your glory. And what makes life so frustrating, though, is when we when we chase the gifts and not the giver, we begin to realize we get frustrating because life is life is broken. It's crooked and life is frustrating because we cannot fix what is crooked. Only God can We can't make meaning come from things that have no value. Only God gives value to what matters most. So let's say it this way. Let's say this unopened can is life purpose and meaning. And every individual is given a can of meaning and life purpose. And the goal of life is to be able to open this. We would know that God says that you're intended to have life more abundant and full, overflowing And so as you're given your life, as you're giving your meaning, as you're given your purpose, you want to open this to be able to experience your life's purpose, your life's meaning. But you chase it through a job and it won't open it. You chase it through a relationship and it won't open it. You chase it through a a team, a friendship, whatever it may be. Uh, How many likes you get on Facebook, whatever it may be. You chase all these other things and you find no meaning in your life. Because what you're doing is you're chasing the temporary. We're not chasing God. And the only one who can open our meaning, the only one who can open our purpose, is God. And so the the quest for meaning and purpose is not about filling your stuff with friends, or fun, or food, or family, or finances. It's about surrendering your life back to Christ. I think Jesus would ask it this way. What is it good for a man to gain the whole world 
and yet forfeit his soul. When Jesus describes fulfillment of life, he says, when you lose your life, you'll find it. To take up his cross and to follow him. But most of us, as Christ followers, we long for the bow to be tied at the end of the night. For the to be continued to never show up on our watch. We want everything put back the way it was supposed to be. And we get uncomfortable when life hangs in the tension, in the balance, in the struggle. The problem, uh, the problem the preacher of Ecclesiastes sees is not the things of this world, but it's the use of them. That unless it gives insight, unless it points to the direction of what's inside of the canon, unless it avails itself to surrendering our lives back to God, it misses the point. The book and the content of Ecclesiastes, it forces us to learn to deal with that which is unpleasant, that which is unanswered from our life. And even when the unpleasant does not come, or even when the pleasant, excuse me, does not come, nor the answers that we desire, we learn to live in that moment, to trust God, to remain faithful, to be obedient to the life that he's called us to. It, by the end, hopefully develops within us a sense of learning to wait on God, learning to wait on God amidst the very uncomfortable and even uncontrollable things of our lives. I mean, look, as a Christ follower, we, we ultimately should have the hope of Jesus in us, right? It should be an unashamed hope that we just express great boldness and great confidence that, that the one who gave his life, who died our death on the cross, who paid for our sins, and gives, it should give us confidence to, to, to approach the world that we're a part of. And yet... Even with that confidence, if we're honest, we all still struggle. When things happen in our lives and the worst that life has to offer, we question, we battle, we struggle. This last week was a, in some ways it was a very normal week, but it was a very difficult week. I spent part of last weekend being with a family who has a, a young toddler who has seizures that he can't control. And you look at a mother and father, great people who love God, and you wonder why. You jump on Facebook and you, you look at a friend's post and all of a sudden you see that his, his brother died in a car accident. You wonder why. Meaningless, meaningless. It all seems so meaningless. And the world throws its worst at us with cancer and divorce and abuse, infertility and miscarriages and death and debt and depression. And many times we can be so overwhelmed that ultimately we begin to question, we begin to wrestle with this whole God thing. But can I tell you? I love God. I think I love God as much as many of us do. But in all this uncertainty in life, it can be terribly frustrating. Sometimes even crippling. 
So I want to be honest today. From the words of Solomon to the reality of life, not everything in life is going to make sense. Even to the people who know God.